like, how do we hear God's voice? I think one of the ways that you can hear God's voice is just to listen to the prayers of God's people. And one of the things I like to do when people are praying is just listen and listen and try to hear what are the common themes? What are the things that are on the hearts of people? Because I think often there lies the clue to what God is speaking to our hearts. And one of the things I think God has been speaking today and throughout this whole morning, all the way back at our pre-service prayer at 8 o'clock, which you are always welcome to join us, is just gratitude. That there's a spirit of gratitude in this room. Uh, just being grateful for what God has given us, for what we have. And, you know, that we lack nothing as God's children. And I just as I come up today, I'm just honored to be able to share God's word once again, and that every time we get to open God's word together and just go to the scriptures and just humbly and with reverence that I'm just so grateful that I get to do this today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament, the very first book, and uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 20, uh, reading first, verse 1 to 16. But for those of you who weren't here last week, um, many of you are coming and going on vacation, and really our posture this summer is like, just rest this summer, you know, church. Just go and rest and take time off and just Sabbath and whatever it is that, you know, God is calling you to do. But all summer, what we're doing as a church is we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And last week, I gave an introduction to why parables are important, why we should read and understand the parables. And if you want to know, you can go to the website. We have a podcast. Listen to the, the first message. It gives an introduction. But the main thing that I would want you to know is that the primary method in which Jesus taught um, while he was alive was through parables, through stories and symbols. And, and parables are that, stories and symbols which convey a deeper meaning. But what's most important is to understand is that parables are not Jesus telling about us, not teaching about us. They are not merely moralistic tales that tell us how to be good people. They are Jesus teaching us what God is like and what his kingdom is like. They're central to understanding the deeper truths about God and his kingdom that are often concealed or hidden by this world. And our role in the parables is to respond by having our hearts open to God, to, to see and to hear the world that Jesus is inviting us to see and to hear, to imagine a world that is fully under the rule and reign of God, that, that as we pray, your kingdom come, which Jesus taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. The parables are how we imagine the world that Jesus is, is inviting us to pray, that kingdom that is coming. And then we are to, as we imagine a world, then we are called to embody that which Jesus is calling us to hear and see. And so let's read our parable this morning in Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 1. So these are Jesus' words. For the kingdom of heaven, you know, Matthew will often substitute the word heaven for the word God. Uh, in other Gospels, we see the kingdom of God. There's not two different kingdoms. There's one kingdom. But out of reverence, because Matthew is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, he'll substitute the word heaven in, uh, for the word God. So if, if you're wondering, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. 
So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friends, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. You know, our parable this morning is titled, is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And it is a parable where Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God to being like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And what prompted Jesus to share this story is what happened earlier in Matthew chapter 19. So to understand the context in which Jesus tells the story, you got to go back one chapter and understand that in Matthew chapter 19, we see this encounter where Jesus and the rich young ruler have a conversation. And this rich young ruler is very pious. He's very holy and is observing the law. And he comes so close to, to being able to inherit the kingdom of God. Yet ultimately, this rich young ruler rejects Jesus' invitation to uh, sell all of his possessions and to follow him. Jesus said, that's one thing you must do if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, to sell all that you have and to follow him. And what the rich young ruler recognized is something I think we've all come to recognize as well, is that God's grace is free, but neither is it cheap. You know, God's grace is costly. It's a costly grace. It came with a cost in which the rich young ruler was not willing to pay. You know, the cost of grace was to give up what his heart held most dearest. That was his wealth, his money, his possessions. And so the rich young ruler chooses to reject God's grace. He chooses to walk away from the kingdom of God. And Peter, who is observing this conversation, this encounter, he recognizes that unlike the rich young ruler, that he and the disciples are ones who have counted the cost of following Jesus. And he puts forward this question to Jesus. He says, see, we, the disciples, have left everything and have followed you. What then will we have? You know, the question is, what will my reward be for the sacrifices that I have made to follow you? And I'm sure that in that moment, Peter could have read the room just a little bit, you know, better than he did. Maybe that was not the right, you know, question to ask at a time like that. But surely he's not the only one who has ever had the feeling that you were owed something for your efforts. You know, think of a, 
of a professional athlete who holds out from his team because he or she believes that they are owed more for what they bring to the team. Or a person, a traveler, who misses their flight and loses their luggage because they chose to fly through Pearson airports. And because of what they've lost, what they've sacrificed, they feel like they are owed something. You know, customers of Rogers this past few days, feel they're owed something, a credit on their account for the services that they have lost. You know, it reminds me of a scene in, in Home Alone 2, you know, where Kevin is brought up to the hotel room by the, the butler, and, and the butler, you know, very, you know, quirky, quirky butler, puts out, you know, his fingers like this for, the, you know, the international symbol of give me a tip. And then Kevin, you know, to his surprise, realizes he owes him something, and he goes into his pocket and he pulls out a piece of gum and puts it in the butler's hands. And he says, you'll be sure there's more of that where that came from. And it's not like we have unrealistic expectations for our compensation, right? What we want is to be treated fairly. You know, we want fair value. It's like when we're interviewing for a job. We, we don't necessarily need the salary. We want the salary grid. We want the range in which someone of my qualifications and experiences is owed. You know, it's why we give our children chores around the house according to their age and the level of responsibility they carry. We want what is fair to be, you know, given to our children. You know, when I was a kid, I had this vivid memory of my mom leaving on Saturday mornings our chore list for each of our... Uh, me and my uh, two other siblings, three of us, that on the table on Saturday morning would be a, a list with each of our names on it, and we would pick up the list, and there would be our chores for the day. And I would remember looking at my list, and I had all these things that I had to do, like vacuum the floors, clean the bathroom, blah, blah, blah. And then I looked at my youngest brother, who's four years younger, and his list would be about a quarter of the size of my list, and at the very bottom it says, and be a good boy. And how does one respond when they feel like they're being mistreated, when they're not being treated fairly? They say, that's not fair. As a parent, I'm sure you've heard that on daily. That's not fair. And so Jesus' parable about the laborers in the vineyard is his response to the question of what is fair and deserved when it comes to the grace and mercy of God. What exactly... Do I deserve, and what should my reward be for the works that I have done? You know, for the sacrifices I have made for the kingdom, for the gifts that I have given to God's church. And there are two ways that one can answer that question. There is the short way and the long way. And the short way is by saying, well, nothing. God owes you and I nothing. So let's just pray, wrap the service up early, and get the Swiss chalet. You know, what do you guys think? The short answer to the question is, what, do, what am I owed? What do I deserve? Is that God gets to be gracious to whomever God wants to be gracious towards, and he will show mercy on those whom he wants to show mercy. That's it. That's the end. And the truth is that we have in Christ received far more than you and I could ever deserve if we lived a million lifetimes of following Jesus. You know, we have still received far more in Christ than we would ever do in our, on our own merit. But of course, I want to give you the longer way because I'm a long-winded pastor to answer the question, what is it that I deserve? And the answer is that whenever we live with a mindset that we think that we are owed something by God for our efforts or our labor, we are diminishing and we are neutralizing our ability to imagine and embody the kingdom of God that Jesus has ushered into the world. 
And it's, that is so, so that is why Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard. You know, the vineyard in the story represents the kingdom. And we have this owner of the vineyard, you know, representing God himself. And then the foreman in the story, of course, represents Jesus. Now, owning a vineyard in, you know, first century Palestine was, you know, it was heavy work. It was major work. And in September during the harvest season, you know, it was necessary for these, these farmers to gather the grapes before the rainy season began. And so they, the season was very short. They didn't have a lot of time. And of course, these, these vineyards, they didn't have, of course, the tools that we have today. And so due to the short-lived and hectic nature of the season, it was very common for vineyard, you know, own, owners of vineyards to hire temporary workers in order to get the grapes, you know, in, so to speak. And so the, what they would do is they would go to nearby towns and villages and hire these temporary workers. Now, these temporary workers, because they were temporary, were not the most skilled laborers. The most skilled laborers would be in the homes, in the vineyards, permanent workers. But these temporary workers were often unskilled at their trade, or they were very near at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, hence the need for them to find work. You know, they were not far, if you can imagine, from, far, far off from being beggars themselves. And because they were unskilled, desperate for work, you know, they were also often very vulnerable, and many owners would take advantage of them paying them very extremely low wages. They're not lazy workers. So when the parable says that they were standing idly by, we should not get the idea that that they're lazy by any means, but rather that they are disadvantaged. These, These men are desperate to feed their families, and they're entirely dependent on the mercy of an employer in order to have their daily bread, you know, in order to feed their families. And so... We see that the master goes out very early in the morning, around 6 o'clock at the first hour of the day, you know, symbolizing 6 a.m. in the morning. And he hires a set of workers for the day. Now, a, a typical day uh, work would be 12 hours, so they would work from, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so, you know, the, 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 he goes out and he hires these workers, and they agree the terms of their, works, of their, of their work is to be paid a denarius. Now, a denarius is a term that represents a day's wages. You know, it was equivalent to about a piece of silver. It was not too much, nor was it too little. It was neither generous, nor was it stingy. You know, it was adequate pay for a day's wages. But in the story, the master goes out again three hours later at 9 a.m. in the morning, because we understand the, the nature of this job is hectic and he needs more workers. So he goes out and he hires more workers. And then he, this pattern is repeated every three hours all the way up to the 11th hour. So all the way up to the 11th hour of the day, 5 p.m., which is one hour left to go in the day, the, the, the owner goes out and he finds these, uh, these workers. And he promises them that each time they, they, that they would get an equal fair share for their work. You know, the, what he says is, whatever is right, I will give you. And so you can imagine that the one hired at 12 noon would say, okay, I'm going to get about half a denarius. The one at, you know, 5 p.m., it's like, well, you know, when you have nothing to eat and you need to feed your family, one hour worth of work is better than nothing. And so the idea of this master going out over and over again to find workers it was strange enough. 
You know, the idea that they would go out several times a day, that would catch their ears. They would recognize that that's not a normal pattern. It's not normal to go out so many times in a day, to go over and over again. But what happens next is where our parable becomes even stranger. That at the end of the day, as the workers are called to receive their fair share of pay, the owner begins by paying the men who came at the very end of the day first. When it should have been the other way around, you should have started with the first hour, you know, workers, and then worked your way up to those who came at five o'clock. But as Jesus said at the very end, the last shall be first, right? The last shall be first. But what was an even bigger surprise is that the ones who worked just one hour, the owner pays them out one denarius, an entire day's wages for working just one hour. And that is amazing. You know, the people working one hour, I'm sure we're, we're thrilled, we're overjoyed to receive such a generous, you know, gift, knowing that they only worked one hour, but they got an entire day's worth of wages. And those who came earlier in the day were just like licking their lips. They're thinking if they've got a whole day's worth of wages for just one hour, what do you think we're going to get for working, you know, six, nine, twelve hours? Now, however, to their disappointment, they too, the ones who worked not one hour, but three hours, six hours, nine hours, and 12 hours, every laborer received one denarius as the terms were agreed to. Those who worked 12 hours received the same pay as the one who worked, but one hour. What is it that our children say when they feel they're not being treated fairly? That's not fair. And of course they object. They charge the owner of the vineyard with two injustices. This is what they say. The ones who came at the very beginning, they said, we worked far longer hours, but we are being paid the same. Is that true? Yes. And the second charge was, we did the more difficult work. We were out here during the hottest hours of the day. We did the heaviest lifting. And the fact that you're treating all of us equally means that you are treating us unequally. And here's where the meaning of our parable begins to come into focus. Because here's what the owner says in Matthew 20, verse 13 to 15. He says, friends... Now, that is a term that when you are greeted with the word friend, that's like when two guys are kind of escalating and one calls the other buddy. You're like, ooh. The word friend is actually the word that Jesus used to um, uh, greet Judas. When Judas had betrayed him in the garden, he called him friend. He said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You know what the owner who represents God does here certainly matters. And that is he comes to his defense. He defends himself. But notice that he doesn't defend himself by merely appealing to his own act of justice. That is, I paid you exactly what you were owed, you agreed to these terms, and now if you don't like it, you can beat it. You can leave if you don't like it. But instead of appealing to his justice, he instead chooses to appeal to his generosity. He says, it was my choice to do that. 
I chose to do this, and it had nothing to do with what is fair or unfair or equal. But the fact that I chose to do this has everything to do with this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to bless those one-hour workers with an entire day worth of wages. And do I, the owner of this vineyard, need you, a temporary unskilled worker's permission, to choose whom I will show mercy to and on whom I will have compassion? And here lies the truth of Jesus. This is what Jesus is revealing to us about God our Father, that our God is a generous God. A God who is rich in mercy and overflowing in love. A God who does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And in order to have mercy and to show compassion and to demonstrate his grace, sometimes it requires a radical generosity that is not going to make sense to you and I, or it might go beyond our understanding of what God should or shouldn't do with his grace. And mercy. And the meaning of this parable then goes straight to your heart is are you okay with God having mercy on whom he wants to have mercy? And are you okay with God being generous with whom he wants to show his generosity? The question is does God need your permission to show his grace? Because what is the grace of God and his salvation other than God's free gift? Bought for and purchased, not by your work, not by your sacrifices, not by your offerings, but by the obedience and sacrifice of one perfect man, Jesus Christ. You see, God was not compelled to send his son into the world. He did so freely and willingly. In fact, scripture tells us that it was while you and I were sinners... While we had turned our backs against God, while we were deep in our sin, that is the moment that Christ died for us. And that is what radical generosity looks like. The gospel is the good news of God's radical grace and mercy towards sinners. It is a, the gospel of an owner who sends his foreman out over and over and over again throughout history, calling people to himself, blessing people with the generosity and the grace of God. And here's the good news of the gospel. God did not save us because we were lovable. God saved us because God is loving in a radical, generous way that doesn't make sense sort of way. We are the laborers in the story. Not just lost, but incapable of achieving salvation by any other means other than through the grace and mercy of God. We are unskilled, unqualified, unmerited, undeserving when it comes to salvation. Yet, in the kingdom of God, the benefits of God's grace have been offered to anyone and everyone freely and impartially. Tax collectors prostitutes, criminals, social outcasts will have the same heavenly residence as the Apostle Paul and Augustine and Luther and Wesley. You know, the kingdom of God is not like the Titanic. There is no first class, second class, third class. We all have a room 
prepared equally for us by the Father. Every believer here today, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, no matter mistakes you've made, you have been made part of the family of God and you've been given a place of belonging in the body of Christ. And you, every disciple, is not just merely a follower of Jesus, but you are a co-heir with Christ. You are a child of God. And whether you are the most gifted Christian in this room who has a lifelong achievement of serving and tithing and giving, or whether you get the lifelong achievement award of sinning and messing things up. But you gave your life to Christ. Maybe you give your life to Christ on your deathbed. Maybe it's the 11th hour and 45 minutes of your life. But you too, if you give your heart to the Lord, will receive God's gift of salvation equally without any restrictions. When the thief on the cross that hung beside Jesus, who deserved to have died for his sins according to the law, when he hung on the cross and he, he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, Jesus did not answer him, too late. No, in his last breath, he acknowledged Jesus as Lord and asked to be remembered. And Jesus said, you won't be with me when I come into my kingdom. You will be with me today in paradise. Today, not a second later. This moment you will be with me. See, in God's kingdom, the thief on the cross receives the same blessings as the apostles who gave their life, who gave everything, who were martyred and brutally murdered for following Jesus. Can someone give me an amen this morning? Does anyone see this as being good news? Like rejoicing in this good news. And I think it would be foolish of me right now to not take a moment just to offer that invitation to you today. I don't know... I I know many of you, but there are some who I don't know, and I don't know where you stand with God today. I don't know if you've ever received God's gift of salvation. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you did a long time ago, but but you have walked away, and and, and you just, just today are beholding the grace and mercy of God towards you, God's radical generosity. You, if you've never done this, or if it's been such a long time, do it right now. Receive God's gift of grace, because it's never too late in the game, friends. It's never too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs, it doesn't matter how deep in your sin you are. It doesn't matter how thick into it you are. It's never too late to receive God's radical generosity in his salvation and in his grace. And so there's the invitation to all of you here today, whether you're a first hour, a third hour, a sixth hour, a ninth, or an eleventh hour believer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But here lies the challenge then to us believers in this parable, as it was to Peter and the disciples. uh, Jesus is saying, like, I don't want you just to imagine this kingdom of generosity. I don't want you just to imagine what a world will look like when it is filled with my radical grace and generosity. I want you to embody it. Because it's one thing to receive the grace of God, God's radical gift of generosity for yourselves, and it's another thing to embody that gift or to celebrate that gift when it's given to someone whom you may or may not think is deserving of God's radical generosity. Who deserves our mercy and our grace? You know, as a pastor, I've come across many hypothetical, hypothetical philosophical, moral, ethical questions often hypothetical questions like, if Adolf Hitler, (laughs) in his very last moments, you know, recognized that he was a sinner, that he was in need of God's grace, he heard the gospel and he repented and he gave his heart to the Lord. 
and he pledged a life of following Jesus, would Hitler receive the same gift of salvation or eternal blessing and fellowship with God? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Now let me give you another hypothetical that gets a little bit closer to home. Imagine with me if a man by the name Vladimir Putin was tuning into Life Center Canada this morning. Just scroll on the internet. Just came across this message. And he hears the good news and grace of God. The radical generosity of the owner of this vineyard. And he realizes that he is a child of God made in his image and that he's a sinner. He has sinned against God, transgressed him. But God has offered him this free gift of grace and salvation. And so he repents and he rejects the life he has been living. And he gets on a private jet and he's going to be here in like 10 minutes. And he walks in through these doors and he says, Life Center Canada, through an interpreter probably, I have sinned against my father and against you and the world. And I'm sorry and I repent of it. And I want to invite Jesus to come live in me. I want to receive God's gift of grace. What would your response be? How would you respond? What would you do? Would you get up out of your seat and then would you embrace him? You know, because Jesus, I believe, I believe so deeply he would get up and he would embrace him. And would you rejoice and would you cheer and would you celebrate knowing the atrocities that a man like that has committed? Would you cheer and rejoice knowing that he is a, a lost sinner who has been found? Because the Bible says that's what happens in heaven every time just one sinner comes to repentance. Now, obviously, I hope you understand this hypothetical illustration is not an excuse of any great injustices or, or acts and crimes committed. Of course, a person like that would need to be held accountable for all his sins. But these are not just hypotheticals. These are situations that are that first hour labors or third hour labors or sixth hour labors are presented every single time an eleventh hour labor comes and inherits the kingdom of God. Ananias was sent by God to the house where the, the where Paul, who was not yet Paul but with Saul, was staying after he encountered the Lord on the road to uh, to Damascus. And there, and Ananias has to go, and he does not know whether this man Saul, who has brutally executed followers of Jesus like himself, what this man was going to do to him. He did not know if this was a trap. He did not know if this man who had the power to arrest and execute him, what he was going to do. But when Ananias came to the house where Saul was staying, you know what he called Saul in that moment? He said, Brother Saul. And Corey Ten Boom, we know the story of Corey Ten Boom, who, was, who spent time in a Nazi concentration camp, who lost her entire family. She tells the story of a Nazi guard who extended his hand to her at one speech. He didn't even say he was sorry. He just extended his hand to her. And she had this dilemma of, am I going to extend my hand out to this man and offer him the forgiveness that I know he does not deserve? But God has offered it to him. And I'm called to do the same. You know, there's a book that I highly recommend. It's a book titled Mission at Nuremberg by Tim Townsend. 
If you ever want to know what this parable looks like in real life, buy that book and read it. It's the story about the chaplain who was assigned to the, the Nazi officers who were being held awaiting uh, 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 trial at the Nuremberg trials. Can you imagine that? You were handpicked and said, you're going to serve as chaplain. You're going to love them and, and serve them the way Christ loves and serves them. And he too tells the story of the, the dilemma and the, the wrestling and the struggles. But despite all that, chose to embody the grace that God had given to him. The point is this. It's easy to apply God's radical generosity when it comes to ourselves. And it's, even, it's sometimes you know, easy to apply the radical generosity of God to those who we know who, who are good people, but they've made some mistakes. But is God's grace big enough for evil people? People who have hurt others intentionally, who have sinned arrogantly. Is the love of God bigger and greater than the evil that lives in the heart of some people? Well, some of these questions are ultimately mysteries. God's truth is straightforward. Where sin abounds, where sin abounds, God's grace abounds even deeper, even more. And so if you haven't been invited by God to experience a radical generosity, his rich mercy, his overflowing love, the call to you today in this parable, don't just imagine a world. Embody it. Live it. Embody it when it doesn't make sense. Embody it when God's grace exceeds your understanding and expectation. Remember, it's God's job to judge sinners. It's our job to love them and to show them grace. God will bring every deed, good and evil, to judgment. He's promised us that. The evil of this world will not go unjudged. But it's about recognizing that it's not our job to pass judgment on sinners. It's to love sinners the way that God loves this sinner every time I look in the mirror. The way that I love that sinner. That is how God has called me to love others. 1 John 3.16 says this. And would you stand with me? This is how we have come to know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to do the same for our brothers and our sisters. This is the kingdom of God. Imagine a world where Jesus has laid down his life for you, where the radical generosity has been given freely to you, and now as freely you have received, freely give. So let's just take a moment and pray. And maybe just ask the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, to whom, Holy Spirit, have I been withholding mercy and grace? To whom have I counted out of the kingdom of God because of what I think qualifies or is deserving? God, to whom have I discounted? Lord, to whom I've said that person will never, never know you. And Lord, I pray today in response to that, open our eyes to imagine a world where every single person that we come across, no matter what they've done, no matter their past, has a future glorious inheritance awaiting for them in Christ that it's possible. Lord, that you, your word says you want none to come. You want none to perish. Not a single person that you have made, that you that is on this earth, you want them to spend an eternity apart from you. Though we know many choose to do that. 
But Lord, I pray that you would just fill us today with the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that filled Christ Jesus, that walked the world, just embodying the grace and the mercy of God the Father. Jesus, you were the the living Word, the Word made flesh. And now that same Spirit is living in us. So Jesus, help us to walk this world embodying the radical generosity of God's grace. Lord, we just ask you, Lord, for many more 11th hour workers. Lord, there's a lot of first, third, six, maybe even nine hour laborers here in this place. But God, we're praying for more 11th hour workers. So help us to go out over and over and over again, Jesus, like you are doing. And invite them to come and receive the kingdom of God. We pray this in your, your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.